Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take up your Bibles. We're continuing our series through Malachi. If you turn to Malachi chapter 3, it's page 802 in the Black Bibles. If we've got one of the large print, it's 954. Malachi chapter 3, just be looking at six verses, verses 6 to 12. As you may remember, Malachi split up into these six exchanges uh, between God and his people. And here we are in the, the fifth exchange. Verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as we get into Malachi 3, I just want you to have a think. Um, Have you ever met someone who just kind of overflows with life and generosity in particular? I don't know, that they've helped you in a time of need, that they've they've given you of their their time, they've they've just given you a, a lovely meal. Now, if you can think of them in your mind, just just consider, well, how have you felt while being around that kind of person? What difference does it make? It's wonderful, isn't it? That they just create this kind of bubble of joy. It's infectious. Their, their generosity, it just, just overflows. It, it lifts our spirits. Even if we're, we're struggling, we might not be able to stop a small spi- smile spreading from our lips, you know, a word of gratitude spilling out. And that idea of the, the person overflowing, it's, it's, it's quite a helpful one. Our, our generosity, our life will often be closely linked to our hearts, an overflow of them. You know, how we treat stuff, how we treat what we own, our money and possessions, it's all, it's all tightly linked into our worship, where our hearts are. That's true of a lot of things, isn't it? Our love, our patience, our goodness, faithfulness, all the fruit of the Spirit, they're a, they're a reflection of our worship. But those things, they intersect and they collide with our wallets and our stuff. Because we, we all know the fight, the tussle, 
We know the grip money can have on us, whether our desire for more, our love of spending what we don't have, or, or love of holding on to what we do. And in this, this time of high mortgage costs and rising food prices, it's also it's complicated, isn't it, and difficult. Budgeting and spending, it's tricky and feels a bit like a minefield. But here in Malachi 3, God wants to go just under the surface of our lives. He wants to peel away kind of the layers of, I don't know, spreadsheets and bank accounts or designer labels and fancy holidays. And he he wants to give us a, a view of the world that's illuminated by him and his character. God isn't a God who just says, you know, stop doing that, start doing that. His his gospel, it works on us. It works on our affections and our desires in a much deeper way. Because knowing how to live as a human is always, always linked to who God is. It's an insight Calvin is famed for. He says, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And that's what's going on in Malachi 3. God first wants, first he shows us himself. So we might begin to understand our own lives better. And the key thing that we see here is this. It's this God's unchanging, generous heart for us. I know it's not the catchiest heading. But God's unchanging, generous heart for us. My longing for this sermon, if we get nothing else from Malachi 3 this evening, is that we begin to know this deep down in our souls, that God's spirit would help us receive this word, that God is a God who overflows in unchanging generosity towards us. Let's start with verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. That's what God starts. He's unchanging. Now we know from this and the rest of scripture, this is a deep fundamental truth about God himself. He does not change. He cannot change. If he changed, then in some way he he can't be perfect. If he changed for the better, then he wasn't perfect before. And if he changes for the worse, then he isn't perfect now. As the glorious perfect one, infinite in love and goodness and justice and truth, he cannot change. But God isn't just telling us this so we we know some kind of deep theology. He wants us to know he's unchanging and he wants us to see what that looks like. What does it mean for us that he is unchanging? Let's look at three aspects that this passage brings out and we'll see what this unchanging heart towards us looks like. He's patient, so we come to him. He's generous, so we find life in him. And he's leading us so we imitate him. Let's go for that first one. He's patient, so we come to him. Verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Here's the first way we see the difference it makes. The children of Jacob, that's God's people, they are not consumed. They're not destroyed. This is something, if you remember, we saw back in chapter one all those weeks ago, God's extraordinary love for God's people, seen in the way he's kept them from his wrath. And boy, are they deserving of it, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. They are marked by sin, rejecting God and his ways, and not just a quick thing. They've been doing this for generations And God's holiness, we know this, God's holiness and his justice means he will deal with all sin that it's against him. He's unchanging in that. But here we see the the execution of that justice paused. We're seeing patience. 
patience. We're seeing that that wall, I suppose, of, of roaring water, of his judgment held back, of a death sentence stayed. Why, verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It's incredible, isn't it? God is holding back the tide of his justice so that they might return to him. He's giving them time so they come back home. They come back to their loving father, feel his arms of love around them. He's giving them time to be reconciled, to find restoration to their relationship. You know, it's perhaps like parents, that they're waiting to call the police on their child. Let's say the Their son has stolen thousands of pounds from them and run. He's transferred the cash, packed his bags and legged it, leaving the door swinging behind behind him. And his parents are waiting. They've told him the door's open to come back, to bring back what he owes to apologize and all will be forgiven. They text him, we love you, come back, come back home. But the police are a phone call away. Justice is waiting But not yet. They want a different way. They want a better way. They want reconciliation. They want to be reunited. They want their son back. That's the heart of God for us. He is patient, so we come to him. And this patience is is such an extraordinary moment of time because God has not only given time for reconciliation, he's also given the way for it to happen. Because for there to be justice, then there needs to be atonement, doesn't there? That guilt, that sin needs to be paid for. God's holiness meets sin cannot be wiped under the carpet. And so in his patience, he's even sent his son. Now the people of Malachi could only dimly see how God would deal with their rebellion. They knew sacrifice was his means, but they couldn't see how. But we, we see God's patience clearly, don't we? We see him giving time for his son to come. Time for Jesus to die for us, paying the price of our sin on the cross, rising to new life. And it's all God's patience that we might come to him. He's given the way, atonement in his son, and he's given the time, time for repentance. Here is God's unchanging, generous heart for us. He longs for his people to know him. Despite their sin, despite their rejection, he loves communion with us, fellowship with us. That's the best thing. He's patient so we come to him. But but what's it like to know him? What kind of God is he? Well, he goes on. He wants us to see more of his heart for us. And we see he's generous so we find life in him. Now, we'll come back to the sins of uh, of Israel in verses 8 and 9 later. But let's just turn to the end of the passage. And in verse 10, God gives us a glimpse of what reconciliation and restoration looks like. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the tests of the laws of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourers for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What, what an incredible promise, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture of abundance. Now these windows of heaven, uh, they aren't some kind of super spiritual picture. He means the clouds. This, this is pouring down of blessing. It's rain. 
Now, this doesn't feel so great for us in a wet country, but this is just what a hot, arid country needs. God is going to turn their barren land into a land of plenty. The brown, dusty, cracked soil will spring forth with juicy green shoots. Crops will grow like never before. Fruit trees laden with food. And none's going to be taken away. There won't be any uh, locusts coming through or crop disease. You know, the supermarket shelves will be stocked to brimming. Farmers will be calling in extra workers at harvest time. You know, the barrel coopers will have to work double time for all the barrels needed for the wine and the whiskey. And this will just go on and on, that phrase, and until there is no need. It's like saying until, until enough has ended. Well, how can enough end if there's plenty? It's just going to go on and on. No wonder this will be called a land of delight. This is life, isn't it? It's a glorious picture of feasting, feasting with friends. With their, they're always being plenty, delicious meat, fresh vegetables, juicy fruit pieces. Now, not in a gluttonous, greedy way, but in a joyful celebration kind of way. This is God's overflowing generosity to his people. So we might have life. That's what reconciliation looks like. Life. This is his heart for us. He's so unchanging in this. He even says, test me in it. He's saying, go for it. I'm just waiting to pour it over you. Now, we might see glimpses of this kind of generosity in people around us, but they are only glimpses, aren't they? You know, I recently read of a guy called Chuck Feeney who is, has huge amounts of money but wants to die without a penny. So he's, he's already given away $8 billion and aims just to keep going. There seems to be more to give. He's just giving and giving dollar after dollar after dollar. Well, for us, we probably see this on a very different scale, don't we? But closer to home. But just in that person who, who always makes you feel welcome when you pop round, it just seems as if they roll out the red carpet for you. They, they give you their whole attention. They give you the best chocolate from the cupboard. It's a little flavor of the life we find in God's. Now, for the, bless, the, for the people of Israel, this blessing promised here w- would have pointed to their, their present need for this year's harvest. But this kind of language, it feels like it's got more in it, doesn't it? It's, it's a grander vision, you know, a land of delight, it says. It's, it pictures endless blessing. And as we look back at the Old Testament, what we realize is that these kinds of blessings, physical, agricultural, material, will... Well, they have always pointed beyond themselves, even for the Old Testament. As the writer to the Hebrews said about Abraham, and he was a very wealthy man, he said, uh, Abraham desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. And so as we read of the rains and the crops, we're, we're being taken, in a sense, to the heavenly places, to what Christ has won for us. We're being shown in, in physical form a glimpse of what Paul means by every spiritual blessing. Christ has won all things. Now that includes the material world. The, the new creation is his. It began in his uh, resurrection life, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. God gives us forgiveness, righteousness, comfort, life, joy, redemption, grace, hope, peace, eternity, friendship, fellowship, all found in Jesus Christ. How? Because he gives us himself in Christ. Remember, he's patient so we come to him. And what's coming to him like? Well, we find life in him. God, the infinite one. How big is your view 
of what being reconciled to God is like. How wonderful is what Christ has won for us in your minds. You know, are we, are we too easily pleased? Are we being captivated by stuff? I don't know, houses, money, new shoes, a boyfriend or girlfriend, kids. Or is, or is your heart big enough to, to see the vastness of what God has for his children? God is unchanging. He's unchanging in the extent of his favor towards his people. He's generous so we find life in him. And this life in God, he's, he's hardwired it into us now. And so thirdly, he's not just patient so we come to him. He's not just generous so we find life in him. He's also leading us so we imitate him. Because you may think, yeah, I know God says he's great and generous, etc. But, but he does still put burdens on our back. It's, it's kind of here in black and white in this passage. Tithes and contributions. That's what this passage is about. God wants to, to break us with taxes. But let's just take a moment to realize what tithes and offerings were. So a tithe is literally a tenth, that is a tenth of your income. And it was taken for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was taken for the Levites in the Old Testament. When God's people were given the tabernacle, God made the tribe of Levi the people to run it. They looked after it, they moved it, they uh, had complete oversight of the worship that went on in it. The priests themselves, they came from the Levitical tribe. The musicians, those who carried the ark, they're all Levites. And so when Israel, when they arrived in the land, were cutting up the land into good-sized chunks for each tribe, the Levites didn't actually get one. Instead, all the other tribes were commanded to give a tenth of their income to the Levites. And that freed them, freed them to lead worship. They didn't need to farm. Uh, They could lead the worship. If God's people uh, were going to obey God's way of worship... If they were going to come to him with the sacrifices he deserved and they needed, if they were going to have teachers who knew God's word, if they were going to have the tabernacle arranged rightly, then they needed to give a tenth of what they had so these guys and their families could live and eat. A tithe, that wasn't a purdim, it meant they could worship God. It was a wonderful thing to provide. And a tithe, it was also taken for the poor. Those who had no support, like orphans and widows, also for the immigrant who hadn't got a job yet. This is a support network. It was for the good of the nation. It was providing for for the least in God's people, for those struggling to survive. What a wonderful thing to provide. Rather than having starving kids on the streets, homes were places with enough. And then lastly, there's a a tithe for uh, an annual feast. that When you collected it all in, you could enjoy Enjoy it before the Lord with all of God's people. Again, not a burden, but a joy. God wasn't putting a yoke on their backs to cripple them. He wasn't, he, instead, he was leading them so they could imitate him. They could imitate him in his generosity, providing for those people around them, giving joy to those who needed it. You know, it's, it's a bit like guiding a, a child on a treasure hunt. You know, as a, as a kid, we used to do treasure hunts around our little village for birthday parties. You know, you'd find a clue, you'd try and solve it, it'd take you to the next clue and so on until you got to the, the treasure, which was sweets probably. And can you imagine if, you know, if we got to a clue and thought, well, this is a bit mean. I have to work out this clue. What a horrible rule. I'm just going to do things my own way. It'd be crazy because then you'd never make it to the treasure. Those clues, they led you to joy. And, and God's ties, they might feel like they're, they're, they're taking from us. 
They're a bit mean, but in fact, they're, they're leading us to treasure. They're, they're, out, they're life-bringing. God leading them was about following him, being life-filled, overflowing people. He wasn't just providing them with stuff. He was leading them in how to live with it. That's how generous he is. He doesn't, he doesn't just want meager lives for us, inward-looking, selfish lives, but lives that overflow outwardly. Scripture shows us what the life of Jesus Christ looks like so that we realize how beautiful and life-filling it is, so we imitate him. As Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And as we do, we become the people we are made to be, images of him. And it's in those moments when we reflect his character, it's then we begin to experience life and more and more as it was meant to be. Perhaps you've had that, you've... I don't know, you've just blessed someone with a gift. And it's been surprisingly joyful for you, not just for them who received it. Why? Because you're imitating God. He leads us so we imitate him. This is the unchanging, generous heart for us. For us. God in himself, he's unchanging. And wonderfully that means he's unchanging in his love He's promised to love those people who are united to Jesus and that love, it's a generous showing of blessing. Patience, so we have the chance to repent and come to him. Generosity, so we have great enjoyment of him and blessing, his blessings, even leading us in life so we might imitate him. It's God's heart, it's for us, towards us, it's lavish love. Now I wonder if that can be tricky. What can be tricky about this is the fact that the, the utter depths of God's generosity does have to be received in faith not in sight we don't see spiritual blessings with our physical eyes but we do still experience them don't we as we receive them by faith somehow you know god's spirit does assure us of them he does pour love into our hearts we do experience a peace that transcends understanding we can abound in hope as we're filled with joy and peace and we know these are wonderful tasters of what is to come. But, but seeing by faith does mean some of us, with all the trials and difficulties of life, we do struggle to think of God, our Father, as a generous Father, don't we? Well, may the Spirit this evening persuade you of his unchanging character, that he longs for you to be close to him. He loves to give you life. And then this then changes us bit by bit in the way we do life, in the way we imitate him. And as we now turn to what this, by the power of Christ's spirit, begins to look like, may we just hold that truth that God is for us in our hearts. And just as we finish, two, two short kind of applications. First, the negative. We, we don't run away, don't turn away and rob. And secondly, return and bring, return and bring. So firstly, don't turn away and rob. That's what had gone wrong in Israel, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Isn't this a distortion of what life is meant to be like? With all that we've just seen of God's generosity, so his people just responded in the opposite way. They turned from him and robbed him. Now obviously in one way, of course you can't 
rob God? That's what it says. Will man rob God? Implying the answer, well, of course not. It's all God's, isn't it? Everything is his. He's the creator of all. He's the owner of all. And yet somehow in our hearts, that's what we try and do. And it's not just that we think, you know, what's in our hands is actually ours. It's then we take back what he's asked to be particularly given for his people and glory. We, we rob him of what's doubly his. It's owned by him and then commanded uh, to be given him. Doesn't it just show a heart turned away from God? Money, it just, it just exposes what's inside us, doesn't it? You know, as those Israelites, just imagine them, they gripped onto that extra tenth they're meant to give away. I don't know, as their, their number of sheep was kept a little higher, as their barns were a little fuller, while their hearts were darkly whispering, it's mine, this is mine. It's not God's, I grew it, it belongs to me. And then it goes further, doesn't it? Well, actually, God hasn't given me enough. I, I need it more than they do. Yes, yes, I might have a good harvest, but look at all the mouths I have to feed. Others can give, not me. Actually, I need to look after number one. Yes, there are poor and the marginalized. Yes, there are the priests and the Levites. Of course, they need food, but that's not my problem. I've got to look after myself. It's ugly, isn't it? Hearts turned away from God and actually turned in on itself, hoarding, keeping, it's like Gollum and the ring, isn't it? Obsessed, twisted, ruined because of it. Money, it's a really frustratingly clear way to our hearts. Our love for what we own, our possessions and cash. Have you, have I, turned away from God and tried to rob him? Now, we don't have to tithe anymore. That system of the tenth is clearly part of the old covenant because it was there to support the Levites, we don't have the Levites anymore and, and also to support the nation's poor. We don't have that sacrificial system and nor as a church do we run the national government and the social security system. But we are still called to express love and care, aren't we? To bless others with what we have, to, to imitate God. We're still called to, to fund church ministry, to look after the poor. And I wonder if rather than by looking at percentages, which can be misleading. Instead, we, we look at how we view our money and possessions. Do I actually believe all that I have is God's, given to me, to steward, to look after for his glory? Or do I actually think it's mine and he can just have a bit of it? Because if it's the latter, we do begin to rob God, don't we? If that were possible, we begin to hold on to what's t- rightfully his, and if I think God's stingy to me, then, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do the same to him. Like that rich young ruler who went away from Jesus, still holding too tightly onto what he owned. And it's serious because it's a symptom of a heart that is turning away. And this passage has warnings. Verse 7, return to me and I'll return to you. Implying if you don't return, nor will I. Uh, God is saying, I've put myself towards you in every way, but if you never turn back to me, you're never going to receive it. In fact, verse 9, you're cursed with a curse. A 19th century commentator called Thomas More put it like this. He said, we may try to defraud God, but in the end, we'll only defraud ourselves. The eagle who, who robbed the food from the altar set fire to her nest from the burning coal that stuck to the stolen flesh. 
So men who retain God's money in their treasures will find it a losing possession. No man ever yet lost anything by serving God with a whole heart or gained anything by serving him with half a one. Isn't that true? To keep tightly in our hands what God wants us to lavish upon others, it it doesn't help us or them, it, it harms us both now and if actually we never return, well then it harms us for eternity. Don't turn away and rob. Instead, return and bring. Those are the commands of this passage, aren't they? Verse seven, return to me and I'll return to you. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Return and bring. The Lord is a generous God. He lavishes love upon us. Why would we not come back to him in repentance? How could we not come to his open arms and admit our wrong? This is the time to do so. God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. If, if you've never come to God before, first to admit you've been wrong, that you've been living for yourself, not for God, and then second to trust, to trust in the forgiveness Jesus offers, or perhaps you did a long time ago, but you know you've wandered, you've walked away, well then can I urge you this evening to listen to God's words? Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. Come to him, speak to him quietly in your mind, and may you begin to know the abundant blessing of being reconciled, of being friends again, father and child with your, with your maker and God's. But then may we be a people who return, yes, but then bring. Bring all that we have before God. Now we don't do this to get more riches like some fake prosperity preachers preach. This promise of God's in Malachi, as we've seen, points to the blessings in Christ, eternal blessings. This isn't you know, a promise that if you give to church, suddenly your bank account's going to go up, or that you have a, I don't know, a special cloud raining on your vegetable patch. No, we don't give to receive rewards from God. If we do that, then our, our hearts have never changed. No, as we follow Christ, our lives of one experiencing his sufferings as well as his resurrection life. Instead, Instead, we bring because we're just so full of God's generosity to us in Christ that we, that we just want to be channels of blessings to others. There's something glorious about a generous life. As we, we thought about at the beginning, being in the presence of someone like that, it just brings life. And as we find the abundance of God's heart to us fill us, so may we begin to bring our stuff, our time, our possessions, our money, may it begin to overflow more and more to others. And as we do, as we walk with God, so we experience the closeness of life with him, we begin to experience in our souls actually the land of delight that we look forward to, God's country, the heavenly city where Jesus Christ is. As we taste it, we long for the wonder of his glorious presence all the more. When we will know and experience the unchanging, generous heart of God, not by faith, but by sight. Amazing. Amen.